1: Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. It's just uh, myself today, Aaron Kimberly, and my co-host Aaron Terrell here today. How are you doing, Aaron?
0: Doing great. Doing very cool. well. Yourself?
1: Good. I've been looking forward to this episode.
0: Yeah, we got a lot of really good questions to tackle.
1: We do, and you know, one thing I was thinking, you know, just minutes before we logged in here was, uh, you know, we we started doing this not with any presumption that we have all the answers but through you know one conversation at a time we're deepening our understanding of these issues and what gender dysphoria is and what struck me with these questions you know it's such um it's so humbling that people have come alongside us on this on this journey to ex- to explore the issue and talk about it and think about it and you see that reflected in these questions they're really smart questions that people are all thinking right. deeply about this. I mean, not to knock the questions that we, we did when we had a, a previous Q&A, but you can kind of see the evolution as everyone's come along with us. And we're we're on this evolution of understanding. And it, it feels like the people that have been tuning in are also uh, coming along in their understanding.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the depth has increased, for sure. It's yeah, great.
1: Really great, great question. So let's, uh, let's dig into the questions. Let's do it. All right, so i'll read the first one, so the first one is is um, multiple questions in one but they're all related i'll read the whole thing first and then we can tackle it one one sub question at a time. Uh, so it starts off saying um, hi I want to ask a question or rather questions on AGP." Uh to try to tease out your thoughts on the divide between those who, on on one hand, say AGP is the main driver for the male to female transition, and those who deny that it even exists. Is there any middle ground in the thinking on this topic? Um, And he said, I I heard a statistic quoted on one of your former editions, something like 75% of trans women being AGP, and I was surprised it was so high and curious about the basis of that figure. And could you comment about the basis on which people who say the concept of AGP has been totally discredited, rest that claim. And what are your thoughts on the theory that gender dysphoria is a sort of DSD of the brain, i.e. that trans woman, that a trans woman is born with a brain that more resembles that of a woman than a man.
0: Yeah. So a whole lot going on. Yeah. Lots Uh, of,
1: lots of rich questions there. Um, Yeah. 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 So the first one being, um, You know, this that divide between those who say that AGP is the main driver for the majority of of trans uh, male to female transition, and those that say that it's totally debunked.
0: Yeah, so, so the, yeah, we obviously clearly, clearly see that divide, um, kind of the clinicians obviously say or the ones who acknowledge uh, the reality of trend you know what are transition motivators, understand that it is, you know, the majority or the major driver. Um, and then the the activists who deny it exists entirely because it kind of, you know, it, it discredits the idea of, you know, gender innate gender identities and things like that. Um, but I think that there is there a middle ground in that. And what I've started to see a lot more of is the the trans activist side the gender the innate gender identity uh, uh, try basically saying yes AGP exists but it's rare and it's only you know it only mo- it, it's 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 not a major motivator most trans women aren't AGP and that's kind of what I'm seeing a lot of now um, it's kind of like they're they're uh, acknowledging that it does exist but that it's yeah it, and, then, and then they do call it a fetish they continue to kind of kind of villainize it while saying it's like this dark dirty sub quarter uh, and don't pay them any mind um, so I don't know if that counts as middle of the road um, but uh, yeah that's that's kind of how I would answer that is people are starting to acknowledge that it that it's there um, but uh, but won't acknowledge just how how pervasive and how common it is, um, and then he says that it looks like the second part of that question is, is just about the the figures, and that seventy five percent I believe it was both Ray, Dr. Ray Blanchard and Dr. Michael Bailey who concluded seventy five percent. I don't know the methodology by which they determined that. Do you do you recall?
1: i don't remember the methodology no i mean it was based on the people they were seeing coming into the clinic right and, and then they were seeing and 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 that wasn't just observed by them they that had been observed by clinicians even long before blanchard's typology and there have been different mm-hmm. ways of trying to understand that and conceptualize it and some people had typologies that had more um more class of subgroups within it. So different people have, have observed that there are these different cohorts that that present differently and they present at different times in their lives. So the middle aged heterosexual men that, that had been coming in and the, and the children who are both male and female were coming in. So these were very observable types of people. And so it wasn't necessarily based on everyone who has gender dysphoria because not everyone with gender dysphoria was necessarily coming into the clinics.
0: Right, that's such an important point,
1: but this but they were studying to and trying to understand what are these two very distinct observable types of, of people coming in and at that time. Um, is when they said that you know that was roughly 75% were those heterosexual middle aged men that were coming into clinics wanting to transition.
0: Yeah. And from my, from my observation, uh, co- again, completely unscientific, entirely anecdotal, is that those that that figure should be way higher now because homophobia is much decreased than it was in the 80s. Um, so there's less of an incentive for the homosexual uh, subtype to be transitioning and transgenderism is so much more. You know, accepted now than it was then. So much more reason for a man who has AGP to take the transition route. So I, again, I just I just feel like 75% is a, is is an actually quite low um, estimate. Not for the that time that that he was actually conducting the you know that research, but uh, but the current climate. I feel like it's it's much higher now. Probably I would wager somewhere in the in the 90%. But again, that's my anecdotally motivated culturally. Uh, 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 influenced uh, uh, take on that. Um,
1: then queer theory has really obscured this picture because I've there've been a number of national surveys that have been done on the trans population and breaking it down into demographics, but because of queer theory, when we break it all down into all these different, you know, 78 genders and all the, you know, different neo-pronouns and different sexual orientations, um, you know, where is pansexual, I mean, realistically a pansexual and a bisexual like what are what is what is the difference um, i think a
0: pansexual but, is a bisexual who believes in gender identity that's that's yeah, the only thing that, i can figure exactly.
1: out. exactly <laughs> but when you so i've tried looking up you know what is the sexual sexual orientation of the trans population today and it's really hard to pull that that data out in terms of um whether you're exclusively androphilic gynophilic, or bisexual is really yep. hard to pull out of that data. And it's hard to pull out the data because are they saying they're gay based on their gender identity, or are they saying they're gay based on their biological sex? And, and so it's, yeah. it's really obscured the data, uh, the data set. Um, but it still seemed to be roughly 70% of trans women were gynophilic, um, meaning attracted mm-hmm. to women. Or bisexual, and that it, there were actually very few ex, um, exclusively androphilic men transitioning in mm-hmm. that in that data set that I saw, and that was a fairly recent survey from I think it was a I can't remember if that was an American or Canadian survey, but it was thousands of trans people were surveyed, and yeah,
0: okay. So okay. yes, yeah, it, it
1: still seems to be the case that most most trans women are either attracted to women exclusively or are bisexual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, What I was gonna say is, you're right that I think a lot of trans people do say, you know, AGP is either completely debunked or yes, it exists, but it's a very small percentage. But I, I get the feeling that I think for a lot of trans women, the only times that they ever really hear about AGP is when it's being used against them as a slur. Yep, yep. And I think that's done, it's such a disservice to those that really want to, to understand this, because our understanding both from those who are using it as a slur, and those who are receiving it as a, as a slur, their understanding of AGP is really shallow, mm-hmm. either yep. way. And, and the more, like as my own understanding of it has deepened and evolved, you know, I've developed a lot more, a lot more empathy for those with, with AGP, the more that I really understand it and, and humanize it and talk to people that have experienced it, that to just call it a disgusting fetish is, is such a shallow and, and skewed read of what AGP is, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and like you said, that read of it is, is causing people, you know, <clears throat> young men or older men or, or teenage boys who have this to obviously, they don't, they don't see that that in themselves right because because they don't because the the, the 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 vilified picture that is painted uh when people talk about agp it's like obviously that's not who they are and that's not how they experience their desire to be women so they're not you know it's not going to resonate with them they're not going to understand this is what I have until they actually read you know the text and the, and the more nuanced and um, uh, yeah compassionate understandings of, of what their experience is and that's when it when it clicks um, mm-hmm.
1: and there but, are yeah. there are nuances just like there are nuances within the homosexual subtype I mean some homosexuals that have that have gender dysphoria experience body dysmorphia but not all do uh-huh. Right, so it seems to how it manifest. It seems to manifest differently from from person to person, and and a, and AGP is sometimes anatomical, it's sometimes it's more clothing based, and, and that's all on a spectrum of of experiences. From more of just the, the straight on sort of um, transvestic fetishism, which is more about clothing, is on a continuum to to ha- having um, that experience about at your actual ana- biological anatomy. And not and that's a piece I think a lot of people are missing that AGP is not always anatomical, but it's yeah. those that have anatomical and and AGP isn't the same as gender dysphoria that that just like homosexual gender nonconformity isn't the same thing as gender non nonconformity, but they're pathways to the development of gender dysphoria exactly. so and it's only, tends to be those that experience anatomical AGP who are most highly motivated to transition. If someone can, can have, you know, their needs met just from occasionally cross-dressing, why would they take the risks or the expense of medically transitioning if they didn't have any anatomical AGP?
0: Well, I think, I think there is a motivator there now. Cause I think what we, we previously understood AGP to be, or, or what, you know, what we call like transvestic fetishism, where it's all about the clothing and the makeup and the appearance and kind of like the, the, you know, you know, kind of like what we super, superficially um, think of as as femininity, and so those that are that that's a, that AGP is directed in that in that way, they still do have a motivation to transition in the sense that we understand transition today, which is kind of like you know living. Not obviously, you know, they're not going to pass very well, but but no no one, no desire to have you know a um, uh, orchiectomies things like that. You know, it's like the they can still transition in a, in a way that's um, uh, you know, as we would say now, like living as a woman or, or living as a trans woman, because, because there is a social incentive to that now where there wasn't at all in the past, um, especially in, in kind of really progressive climates. It's, it's, it's like you, you kind of go from maybe being a, a, a reclusive weird dude to being, you know, um, uh, yeah, a, a celebrated mm-hmm. lesbian. So there, there is that, benefit, that, that, that incentive now, I would say that's a bit different than, uh, than in the past.
1: It's like the the bar, the threshold has been lowered in right, over the years. Right. And I would say that's true of the homosexual subtype too. I know you were saying because there's less homophobia, fewer gay and lesbians are transitioning. But I'd say um when I looked at the stats of just the people that I saw and followed in my practice, the majority were same-sex attracted girls. And the so I think a lot of lesbians are still transitioning, um, but most of the most of the boy needle boys that I saw were um, were straight or bisexual, but the majority of girls that I saw were lesbians.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, but I mean, the other thing too, though, if you know, going to looking at those, yeah, you know, I think it's now twelve dissistent studies that showed that most childhood gender dysphoria does resolve by by um, through adolescence and most of those kids that grow up to be gay, because that's not the public narrative. I think when we're looking at, at kids with gender dysphoria, those kids are automatically being labeled as trans and, right. and being socially and, and then medically transitioned at a, at a much earlier age. So I do think more homosexuals are probably tr- being transitioned because people don't understand that that experience is common amongst gay people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, very good point. It's like what we're talking. Yeah, the, the 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 young children, absolutely, that's happening. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think
1: most of the resistance to this idea of AGP is largely based on a misunderstanding of what AGP is. Yeah. Um, and, and if also one of the other subtleties or nuances that I've noticed from t- you know talking to people with AGP is it's not always overtly sexual. It, you know, and if we think of it, I know we've gotten into into trouble in the past by comparing it to a sexual orientation, but I think that's a really helpful concept because sexual orientation is multidimensional. It's not just sexual or being, you know, the, that act of sex or being aroused. And people have described AGP. If you know, if you think of any um, heterosexual male, some are more highly sexual than others. Even though their sexual orientation is all the same, they're all heterosexuals, but some are very sexually motivated, some are more um, romantic, some, you know, have emotional bonds with their partners, and, and it's less of a sexual, less of a sexual thing. So there's a range of ways to be a heterosexual male. And I think the same is true with AGP, is that the attraction to the self as female isn't always overtly sexual, some develop an emotional bond to that idea,
0: yeah, which is why yeah, I think big... I think
1: just calling it a fetish really reduces it down yep. to a very one-dimensional understanding of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in terms of middle ground, I, I don't know. I think maybe if we could call it a middle ground, I mean, it's not necessarily middle between two poles, but I, I think better education and understanding of it, I think, will be helpful for us to try to start to get to a middle ground. I know there was a, um, one, I can't remember who it was that said it, but she said that the sexual, she actually admits to the sexual component of male to female transition, but she said that the sexual part of it is a trauma response. But I, I don't know why that would only be the, applicable to hetero, the heterosexual males transitioning and not the gay men transitioning or not the females that are transitioning to male. But it doesn't really explain that, for because it not isn't, isn't the our experience?
0: Yeah, yeah, and you don't hear a lot of the the um you know autogynephilic experiences. They, they they talked about it basically kind of manifesting out of nowhere. Like I, I don't think that there is. I mean that I'm certain that was her experience, and, and maybe that's how you know. Yeah, we we kind of make sense of ourselves in all sorts of ways. Um, but but I think that that's um, yeah, it's definitely not. I, I don't think that's a common uh, a common origin of yeah. of AGP or personal. And I
1: think I think we get into trouble when we base all of our understanding of these things on personal narratives because we you know we're all yep. Yep. we all have internalized a slightly different narrative to try to make sense of this experience, and that doesn't make it true. Like we all come up with a narrative that feels good for us.
0: It's exactly why I'm so excited about what like what we're doing here and all the people that we're interviewing and just like, you just tell your own story and like, and it's not like we're like ever going to be like, oh, you're, of course not but I mean, it's like, what, what we get from having so many different people tell their very different stories is you realize that just how multifaceted it is it is and yeah what we call gender dysphoria is yeah a myriad of of different uh, different experiences um, but yeah, all all we can do as as far as learning people's experiences is there is their you know personal narrative, and a lot of that is yeah what they've what they've told themselves and what they want to believe of their experience, um, yeah, or what the yeah. community has told them. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So the
1: the basis for those who say that AGP has been totally discredited um, comes from a couple of a couple of papers, there's one paper where they um, had a, a an AGP scale that they asked, um, they asked natal females, um, similar questions about sexuality and determined that it, um their the conclusion of this study was that well, AGP must not exist, because this is just a normal female experience. And that actually right. reaffirms my femaleness that you know cis women. I I, I don't. i in air quotes. Cis women feel experience that as well. That they they feel sexy being in their bodies. So this is this is um but erotic embodiment mm-hmm. is a new terminology, right? Erotic embodiment rather than, than AGP. But again, that's that seems very specific to only one cohort of trans people that experience this erotic emb- embodiment. I know I haven't.
0: No, <laughs> so. no nor I. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, there's, so there's two, there's two different debunkings as as they would put it is yes. It's like AGP exists, but women have it, you know? So, so me as a trans woman having this experience, it's totally normal because women have this experience. Um, and then the other is, is no, it's, it's just debunking. It's just bullshit. There is no such thing. It's just, um, it's just a, a, a transphobe trying to paint all trans women or, or yeah, to, as, as, um, uh, perverts, which obviously, if you read Ray Blanchard, who coined the term, he's absolutely not doing that. But, um, but still, I think I think most people who 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 object, I think most serious people in the in the trans debate on the gender identity side, they really try to avoid it entirely and don't actually directly engage with the concept, Um, whereas it's mostly the kind of activists, online activists who really aren't educated in it. They just have heard that it's a transphobic lie, and so that's just what they say it is. And so, so, so much of the, of the, of AGPs debunked is people who have no idea really, they don't really understand what AGP is. They don't understand what the typology is, and they, and, and they don't understand what debunking it would even look like because it hasn't been debunked. but um, like so so it's it doesn't seem to be coming from a, a very um, educated place. And when you ask, you know, when I start asking for people like, okay so, so you're saying it's it's out of date, it's been debunked. It's irrelevant now. you know, this was obviously highly rigorous and intensive. Um, research that was done and studied and peer-reviewed and, and um, you know accepted. and obviously like as you're saying for the, the eons, before that we've seen transgender people, it's kind of been a given that these two that these two uh, motivations exist. Um, uh, and then so when you say, okay, so, so obviously some new science must have come along to say that this isn't real um, or, the, or that there's an, a better explanation for why heterosexual or bisexual males. Uh, uh, transition. And they just start talking about how there is, and we're going to get to this in one of the questions later on, is that there is, a, you know, a, 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 there's something in the brain that makes somebody uh, transgender. And that, and what they're referencing is a study that was conducted entirely on same-sex attracted transitioners. And so it's, and and they, and they just stop, they, they don't, it just, it just turns into, you know, accusations and whatnot at that point. There's no, there's nothing that that's ever been done obviously to uh, to discredit it and so the debunking is just a very shallow um yeah shallow argument part of the
1: problem too is that we all have access to a little bit of information so we all have access to a lot of these studies at least the abstract of the studies and but we don't necessarily have the training to analyze the studies and really to really critically think about you know uh-huh. what, what is the study design is it really are they really drawing conclusions that that fit the data is their methodology sound like, and what is the what is the context of this study. You know, yeah. in context of all the studies that exist, but also a lot of the headline the the titles of studies and the abstracts can be a bit misleading. And so anyone who really wants to dig into evidence, people that like the Cochrane reviews, when you're really digging into systematic reviews of evidence, you need a certain amount of training and knowledge to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm not qualified to do that. You know, it, it requires a certain amount of clinical understanding of research to really dissect those studies. And you can't base anything on a single study. You have to look at the entire body of studies over time. And you're right, there really hasn't been any scientific study that is completely displaced Blanchard's research
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or pointed to any other, um, you know, um, yeah, realistic motivation for, for that, that phenomenon.
1: And, uh, di- uh, did you hear that? Uh, did you see that paper? biz Bailey did a uh, follow-up paper, um, yeah. Yeah. to, to basically counteract the, that, that study I just mentioned about surveying women and to see if they feel, you know, Um, attracted to their own bodies, but they, they did, they did do a a follow-up study to that and debunked the debunking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who, who would have thought that would be the result? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, Um. Okay. And then, so the last part of that question is, what are your thoughts on the theory that gender dysphoria is a sort of DSD of the brain, you touched on this a little bit already, um, that trans women is, a trans woman is born with a brain that more resembles that of a woman than a man. So let's flesh that out a little bit more.
0: Yeah, we kind of kind of touched on that a bit is, um, yeah, there there have been studies into, uh, but it was uh, exclusively same sex attracted, both male and female uh transitioners and that's the kicker there is uh, basically i think what was determined um was was what what we're really seeing there is is a, a, a homosexual brain not a transsexual brain and um so it doesn't really apply to the um uh to yeah to the heterosexual uh transitioners mm-hmm. it's a completely different uh different phenomenon uh, going on there
1: Yeah, if I understand the science of this correctly, I I think what they've landed on at this point is that there's really no such thing as a male male brain or female brain. That they can't really reliably see the differences between male brains and female brains, but they can see the difference, um, generally speaking, between androphilic brains and gynephilic brains.
0: So but I thought the the, the way that that was done was that so you've got this base group of this is the average female brain or this is the design because there are there are like certain parts of the brain that are smaller or larger depending on the sex it's not like similar to like, you know, skeletons and heights and stuff it's not like you can't really sex somebody based on looking at their brain, Mm -hmm. but as I understand it there is you know generally. Uh, you know, a, a typical female brain and a typical male brain, and that's how they were determining the androphilic versus gynophilic. Or is that what you're saying? Is like it's that's either, what I'm saying. That, the, oh, that the, okay. I mean,
1: it just so happens that you know most people, most women are androphilic. Most women are heterosexual. Most men are heterosexual. So most of the differences uh, that they're exactly seeing right. between male and female brains could actually be their sexual orientation, because when they scan the brains of homosexual men their brains re- do resemble more like women's brains but it doesn't mean they have women's brains it means that there are they similarities have that they have androphilic brains, brains. yeah i oh, think right. it's or i think it's organized more around their sexual orientation than than the sex of the individual
0: yeah yeah and that is interesting because we certainly know uh that that uh androphilic men and androphilic women certainly have different relationships to sex so uh by just the, the frequency and the diversity of seeking it out so when it comes to um you know sex androphilic men are very much typically male in that regard so <clears throat> so yeah that is interesting when we come to, to to analyzing the brains there i wonder what the what the difference is yeah in that determinant
1: Kantor, James Cantor wrote a paper summarizing some of the um, brain scan studies, and he said, um, I think the, even the title of the paper was something like, you know, recent MRI studies confirm, confirm Blanchard's typology, because when they, um, you're right that a lot of the the fault of a lot of the studies is they don't control for sexual orientation. If you think that a trans person is just a trans person and you line up 500 trans people and scan their brains and don't control for sexual orientation, it's really not gonna be very meaningful data. But when they do control for sexual orientation, they find that the homosexual transsexuals' brains do look more similar to the opposite sex, but that's not the case for the the AGP type Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of uh, male to female transsexuals yep so he wow. said he said there's a line in his study that says if there's a case and he didn't say there was a case but if there was a case for transsexualism being a kind of like a dsd of the brain that would only apply to the homosexuals
0: yep yep Wow. we gave uh <laughs> that was a that wasn't a, a an involved question <laughs> that
1: yeah that was a cluster was a of fantastic yeah. questions yeah so you, you yep. want to ask the next one next one
0: yeah, yeah. So uh, next up is uh, another great one. Um, I have an FTM sibling who my kids only know as an uncle. I teach my kids about biological sex in an age-appropriate way, but haven't broached this topic because my sibling passes very well. When I do explain gender dysphoria slash transition to them, how would you suggest I describe it?
1: It's a tough question. Um, and the, the the person asking the question didn't say how old the kids were so it's hard to say what is age appropriate yeah. in this specific case, but I say i'd say less is more information like I don't understand I don't think I don't think kids, this is different because it's somebody that they know yeah. Um. But I don't. I don't think kids need a lot of detailed information about you know. Homosexual gender dysphoria or AGP. I mean, I think these are difficult concepts, I think, even for yeah. a lot of adults to really wrap their heads around. So I don't think kids would really understand that. And I don't think it's really necessary for them to know. So maybe it may something just very short and sweet, you know, that there's a handful of conditions that make people want to be the opposite sex. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I mean, it, does it have to be more complicated than that? You know, there's a handful of conditions, you know, that are quite rare and you know that that the doctors can diagnose and there are certain cases when the doctors feel it's appropriate to for people to to medically um you know change their bodies to appear like the opposite sex and 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 for some certain conditions that's helpful and and i don't think it has to be any more complicated than that
0: no i think you're absolutely right yeah and i think it might i'm wondering how useful it would be to to I, well I think it would be entirely helpful for her to discuss it with her sibling as well it's like look I'm going to be be honest about biology with with my children and you know what you know what's your opinion or what would you I mean obviously you know it's it's, it's you know your children you and you, you you know explain it to them um as, as is as is correct but um but yeah it, since this is somebody that's obviously deeply involved in their lives you know that uh, yeah consulting them on how on how they would like to that that subject to be broached um, but yeah otherwise I, I completely agree it's like you know uncle so- and so was born a girl um but had you know one of these yeah unusual conditions uh that 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 made him very uncomfortable with his body and now he 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 medically changed it to to look like a man um and I think that's just kind of the way the way to phrase it, which is mm-hmm. just the exactly honest <laughs> reality yeah. of it.
1: I could see a potential conflict there if um they, you know the uncle in the story has a more of a queer theory ideological way of understanding their own yeah. transition and and the parent in this story doesn't really believe in that ideology. I could see there being a conflict there.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Very which, good point. Which means that's to touchy.
1: That difficult to navigate within a family.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right. Next up.
1: How do you guys work through the paradox of gender not mattering and knowing that but still deciding to transition and care about it? How about others in the community
0: i it is it is, it is I think it does appear as a paradox i can, I can entirely understand that uh, phrasing it that way to me it doesn't feel like a paradox because well first of all, I don't believe that gender doesn't matter. I do think for a lot of reasons in society you know gender you know, it, it exists for, and when I say gender, I mean the kind of social manifestation of sex is what I mean by gender. And, um, and I think for a lot of reasons, gender has always and will always be a part of human uh, uh, civilization because, yeah, yeah, because we're sexually dimorphic and that, yeah, anyway. Um, but, but I don't believe that I have a gender identity. I know that I have gender dysphoria. And I know that it's greatly reduced by by my physical transition, and by society perceiving me as if I were male. Um, and yes, for the rest of the community, I don't know how to uh, to answer for them. But uh, I don't know how would you answer that one?
1: Yeah, I think my answer is similar. You know, I've been thinking pretty deeply about this stuff for a long time, and I think I you know, I've worked out what my own reasons for, you know, my dysphoria and my transition were about, but that, that knowledge doesn't cure the gender dysphoria.
0: Right. Right.
1: I still have it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, had I been born at a different time or a different place, maybe I wouldn't have developed gender dysphoria. I mean, it, it, um, I keep coming back to one of Vasey's studies where he looked at, um, Samoans, who you know, a lot of the effeminate gay men are identified as fafafine, and and are 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 just even into adulthood are very feminine presenting gay males, and they know that they're gay males. They they don't they don't um, they know they're not actually women. And so in so the the conclusion he drew from this paper that in societies that tolerate and and create space for the gender nonconformity of homosexuality, that they they don't tend to develop gender dysphoria.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I think that's a mistake that has been made in the past in treating gender dysphoria, is they've attached the gender nonconformity to the dysphoria and they've tried to get rid of all of that. Right? They tried to get rid of the gender nonconformity, you know, taking dolls away from boys and and or not letting boys wear dresses. So they've they've Packaged the gender dysphoria and the gender nonconformity up into one thing and tried to get rid of all of it. But I think what Vasey's studies are pointing to is that the gender nonconformity is just an organic aspect and a dimension of homosexuality that is expressed more in some cultures than others. And I think in the West, that aspect of homosexuality has been really repressed. Mm-hmm. And I think gender dysphoria is a culture bound condition in places where that is repressed. And not allowed to to give expression and so that it turns into. distress and discomfort. You know yeah. that, that doesn't resolve as we get older so. Do I think it should be that way no but it. it you know, I would love to see a world where we can just be ourselves and express ourselves and not have to repress, you know, aspects of ourselves in ways that end up creating psychological conditions. Uh-huh. That would be awesome. But that isn't the world that I was born into. So, right. uh, so I, yeah. I, I did develop gender dysphoria, and it even today hasn't, hasn't fully resolved, uh, despite how much work I've done to understand it and really dig through my own stuff. I don't think in my case it was as simple as just trauma. You know, I think I was probably born, you know, a type of gay person that had, you know, this this very intense gender nonconformity. And um, had I been, had been born in a different place in a different time, maybe that wouldn't have progressed into gender dysphoria or maybe the dysphoria would have resolved as it does in, you know, 80% of the cases.
0: I've been thinking a lot about that too <clears throat> is, when i was very young i'm what i remember the constant messaging is is girls don't do that girls don't do that girls don't wear this and just constantly i was, was like a constant state of shame is what it felt like that i was always doing that i was always getting it wrong in in my behavior and when with all things that were boy related is what i wanted to be doing and what felt you know fun and natural and but i knew that was wrong and i think what my brain did was that just deter- decided that it was my body that was that was wrong like that and so the that that um that external messaging is is internalized and i think i think that's exactly that was all brought up for me reading that uh Vazie's, uh conclusions about mm-hmm. it's like yeah what would that never would it never have been a problem with my body had um had i just been allowed to be as i was naturally you know as as was natural um so i think i think it's probably spot on
1: Mm -hmm. all right should we move on to the next question
0: yeah all right Here we go. Uh, do you think gender variant behaviors, homosexuality, dysphoria, GNC, etc., have a biological basis?
1: I think with homosexuality, I think it's more straightforward in homosexual males than it is homosexual females. Um, I mean, Blanchard's done one of Blanchard's major contributions to science is actually his studies on the causes of homosexuality, and he um, he discovered that. Um, that one of the causes of, of male homosexuality is having a lot of older brothers. And that he discovered that as, as when a woman has multiple males, um, I hope I don't misrepresent this, I hope I understand the science correctly, but it, it, it's her immune system um, starts to, it, it, her immune system ends up having an impact on the, the testosterone levels that the fetus is exposed to. And that, because of the hypotestosterone exposure of the male fetuses, that they end up um, becoming homosexuals. Now, I think it was Bailey that told me that that there's really only one cause of male homosexuality, and that is the hypotestosterone exposure. But there's mul- multiple reasons for why um, that the testosterone levels were low. So there's there's different reasons mm. for why the testosterone's low, but there's really only one cause of male homosexuality. I don't think that's true for women.
0: No, I, I don't think so. Either. I do
1: think one, they have, there are studies that say that one cause of female homosexuality is, is testosterone exposure. So the kind of the opposite of male homosexuality. So I do think there's mm-hmm. a type of female homosexuality that could be in an analogy, an analogy to male homosexuality, but I don't think all, all lesbians. I don't think that's the case for all lesbians. And, yeah, and and I we, agree with you. yes and we know that the female homo- female sexuality in general tends to be more fluid and more um relational than than that target um you know there's a, i think that's why we don't really see a lot of agp in in women is that women female sexuality isn't target based we don't have this you know psychological target and and so we can't experience target location errors mm-hmm. But I think, I think butch lesbians in particular are, I'm going to hazard a guess that, that a lot of butch lesbians are the type of lesbian that were, um, related to high testosterone. Yeah. That's my, that's my hunch. And, and probably why it's butch lesbians that experience gender dysphoria more so than other types of more like feminine presenting lesbians. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's also the DSD element as well, which is entirely biological, right? And that that's a major cause of, of dysphoria. Um, I think mostly in, in natal females. I can't remember. Alice Drager wrote about it. Um, I can't remember the, the, the specific um, what it was, but you don't really see. I, I'm not like the, the, the DSD types of dysphoria. Do those exist in the male population to your knowledge?
1: That's a good question. I, I the one any the ones that I've known have all been natal females. Yeah, a, and you know, so it's, it's it's a small percentage of people with DSDs, and it's it tends to be the yeah the female DSDs that I'm aware of the ones that are related to testosterone. Mm-hmm. So the one that the one that I had for example the um, ovotesticular one because I had testicular tissue my testosterone levels would have been high even as a fetus until mm-hmm. that was removed. And there are other, like the um, congenital adrenal hypo- hyperplasia also is associated with high testosterone. That's yeah yep, and they're more likely to be lesbians, they're more likely to choose male occupations, and I, I'm guessing are more likely to, to experience dif- uh, yeah. gender dysphoria as well.
0: I assume yeah.
1: which then you know raises the question for me, is if it's testosterone exposure in the, the DSDs that have higher rates of gender dysphoria because i think with the ovotesticular dsd it's a very high rate of gender dysphoria to almost like a 50/50 mix of we don't know wow. what, what this person's going to you know what sex they're going to identify with as they get older so that it's 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 a very it's a very rare dsd but it's one where they where they struggle to assign a sex at birth because of the high unpredictability of what that person's self identity is going to be right right um, But if so, if that if it's the testosterone exposure that a female is exposed to in utero that causes uh, DSD related gender dysphoria, but it's also testosterone um, that causes some types of homosexuality, it kind of makes me wonder is DSD related gender dysphoria really much different from gay gender dysphoria if they're both related to testosterone, to either testosterone exposure or too little testosterone exposure. they could be the same thing at the brain level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It very well could. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah.
1: And either way, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make your brain more like the opposite sex. Like, like, I think like in my pathway, I was both same sex attracted and had a DSD you know, I think it's like the DSD being, being exposed to too much testosterone.
0: That, that probably, probably preceded the the homosexuality. Probably, yeah,
1: probably is what yeah. made me a homosexual, homosexual. And then, so, I don't know. I mean, is my GD DSD related or homosexual, the homosexual subtype? Like I'm not sure it matters because it's the same pathway. It's probably just too high
0: testosterone. related. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The others are just contributing factors or, or resulting factors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know. Um, I'm, I never had, um, well, when I went in to get uh, my uh, initially start testosterone, um, I was told that I had, I don't know, remember the numbers, but that I had very high, high testosterone for a female as it was. And I also had very late and very painful uh, 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 or late starting um, uh, menstruation, very, very painful, very irregular. And I think those two are probably somehow somehow related
1: there's there's studies to that effect too that that they do there is a correlation between um hormone imbalances and gynecological problems um like polycystic ovarian syndrome Um, and even anecdotally just knowing a lot of trans guys over the years seems like the majority of them had some kind of gynecological problem
0: yeah yeah i've heard a lot of that too so i guess the answer to the question is yes (laughs) there is a biological basis
1: yeah perhaps indirectly but um with HAP I don't know that we know for sure that there's a biological basis um but I mean it sounds like Blanchard and Bailey feel like it's could be something you're born with
0: yeah so and I I talked to Bailey about this directly I've I i do not the concept of, of being born with autogynephilia, that doesn't make sense to me. But autogynephilia being a target location error and being born with a propensity for a target location error, th- that's what makes sense to me. It's like if there's something in the brain that's not not to be offensive, but not wired correctly, and that, and, and that you're more easily... It's more easy to get those wires crossed, and mm-hmm. that would result in autogynephilia. That's that's my take. Um, he definitely said that was it was reasonable, um, but um, I, think, I don't have I, any signs to back that up.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think that I would also explain why if you have one target location error, you tend to have multiple, mm-hmm. or or yep. more more likely to have multiple. You know, so you're more likely to have AGP as well as I don't being know being a furry a, or a foot fetish or whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? So. So that that makes sense, right? If 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 the vulnerability is to the lo, is to the location error, not a specific target, makes sense to me. And we do hear um, people talk of people with AGP because Debbie has written about it. Um, she recalls uh, childhood experiences of AGP, mm-hmm. and initially that confused me because it's if they have a childhood experiences of AGP then why is that called late onset gender dysphoria, whereas the childhood experiences of the homosexual subtype are called early onset. But I think that's because we need to separate the idea of AGP and the homosexual gender nonconformity from our concept of gender dysphoria, in that homosexual gender nonconformity can, can almost immediately lead to gender dysphoria in early childhood. I know that that mind developed almost as soon as I understood the difference between boys and girls and, and developed a categorization system of male and female. I almost immediately placed myself in the boy category and that and almost immediately that caused me distressed because that was confusing. So I, I think that's why gender nonconformity in gay and lesbians can almost immediately turn into gender dysphoria in early childhood, whereas AGP doesn't tend to to cause gender dysphoria immediately so they might have childhood experiences of agp but it's not gender dysphoria yet
0: yeah what what they seem to report is basically just having a fixation on all things about girls, you know, like they're, yeah. you know, wanting to wear their clothes. And it's, it, it's completely asexual, obviously, because they're yeah. prepubescent. Um, but to me, it's quite analogous to just how, how um, young children will have like crushes on one another that are completely, you know, platonic or chaste or whatever. you, how you or, And then it's only after puberty that there becomes a, a sexual element. And so I think for a lot of people who are autogynephilic, it could have been quite minimal and so much as to not even realize. Like not to have any memories of childhood Mm of being like fixated on, you know, wishing you could wear the skirt, you know, like, it it could be very that those experiences weren't very memorable or very Mm -hmm. long lasting. And that's why it just didn't exist in their brain until uh, puberty. Um, But I think then for those who, um, who it was more, more intense um or not more into, but like they remember fe- those feelings again those non-sexual feelings from childhood and then they become sexual post-puberty um but yeah it, it, i think with with agp there's there's no there's no external clue you know as, as mm-hmm. if for a child you know whereas with the with the homosexual it's 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 evident to the people around this child that they're gender non-conforming yeah um but with the agps it's an entirely internal experience um and it's only you know when <laughs> you know you, you can't hide it anymore and you get caught yeah. you know like as yeah. it, you know when, when it becomes a sexual thing um whereas so every, everyone
1: everyone observed that i was gender nonconforming as a little kid right
0: right right, right. but yeah having have, just having a fixation on on you know high heels you know yeah. it's not going to nobody's going to know that because you're going to you know, don't tell anybody it.
1: exactly so i've con- i've come to understand gender dysphoria as just meaning the compulsion to change sex Oh, right. But but oh. that but that there are multiple pathways to that and, and that sure. and that little boys with AGP don't necessarily feel a compulsion to change sex at that age.
0: I see. I see what you mean.
1: Whereas a little kid who is extremely gender nonconforming like I was, who made this sort of categorization error right. in their head that I was, who was distressed from that as I was. I had that. I had a drive to be the opposite sex right from age three. Yep.
0: Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay, that's an interesting way of phrasing it. Um, but a lot of a lot of AGPs don't have the desire to to change sex. Or at least not for more than a you know, once or twice a day, you know, like yeah, it's, it's it's not yeah. Well just like not not, not
1: not all gender nonconforming homosexuals want to change sex. I think not true. all not yep. all people with AGP develop gender dysphoria. Yeah. And even yep. if they did, not all of them are are then actually acting on it and medicalizing
0: yeah okay yeah that's that's an interesting way of, of putting it yeah gender dysphoria is basically just the desire to change sex
1: that's how i've started to think of it anyway okay if, if it stops being useful i'll, I'll drop that <laughs> we'll change it yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah um whose turn is it i
1: think it's my turn to read okay uh so why do you consider yourselves in terms of your birth sex if you aren't perceived that way by the vast majority of the outer world and have taken surgical procedures to hide it
0: uh because i morally can't not do that anymore um that's that's my answer to this question is um i didn't obviously intend to be this out about the reality of my sex um but um it's 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 useful to be i feel like it's um I I do it because it can, can, yeah, because there's just so much, so much darkness being hidden under all the obfuscation of, of gender lingo. And, and I just, you know, I kind of overcame that, that uh, revulsion or that, or that aversion to, uh, to saying that I am female. And I, I say it because it's true. and, I think it's helpful to clear through all the all the bs smoke and mirrors um but um but yeah that's why i do it <laughs> it's not something i certainly wanted to do but yeah, yeah here we are
1: and you know we're on twitter talking about this stuff and youtube talking about this stuff i mean i don't and that's the context in which people are getting to know us like, that's I, d- true. I don't i don't Announce everywhere I go when, I go, when yep. I go to the grocery store to to buy my groceries or or fill up my gas with or fill up my car with gas. I'm not announcing to everyone. Oh, by the way, I'm biologically female. Right, um,
0: right. Yep. But but I'm still uh, legally male, and yeah. I still exist in the world as such. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It's just but but
1: I think it's important to when it comes to um, developing public policy and law i mean that's where i think it's important to retain our understanding of biological sex um because you know i'm i'm not i wasn't born male and and i'm i'll never be um i'll never be biologically male and th- and that matters i am different i'm you <clears> know i'm it's like i'm a different kind of guy in the world um and I, th- I just think it's really important to retain our awareness of that and retain our awareness yeah. of what we understand yeah. about biological sex in terms of psychology, behavior, and, and our, just our physical health. Like, there's so many different reasons for why it, it's helpful for me to retain that information about myself and integrate that into my self-concept. Because what I was really struggling with, and I hear this a lot in the community, is a struggle with it's called imposter syndrome. That they feel like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a man, and I exist in the world as a man, and I'm legally male, and I look male, but I, I can't get rid of this imposter syndrome. You know, I just have this insecurity all the time, and I think that's a pretty common yeah experience. And that just kind of goes away when it's like, you know, what? I'm a I'm a trans dude. I'm not a dude, and yeah, and integrating all of that into my self concept has really helped to improve just my self-esteem and, and just to be able to just kind of drop feeling like, well, why do I, why do I have to be a, you know, a dude like every other dude? I mean, it's, right. it, it sucks. I wish I didn't have this condition, but this is my reality. And, and why is that not okay? Like, why is it not okay to just be trans and embrace our full reality?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's psychologically much more beneficial, uh, I, yeah, to us. To to to, yeah to to embrace the reality of it. When you said imposter syndrome, it's like it's uh, it's it's not a syndrome, is it? I am an imposter <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> because we can never, and that's why it's different from, from imposter syndrome. You know, like if I, if I went and did a degree in something and then started the career, I mean, that's usually where we hear about imposter syndrome. If it's my self esteem, right. I'm qualified. I've got, I did the right. degree. I am. Right. I just don't have the confidence in myself. Whereas this is right. quite different. It's not just a confidence issue. It's that I can't convince myself. Right. That I That I truly am male. And I don't feel confident that everyone else around me, if they knew this about me, would really believe that either. How do you ever feel secure? Because that is a reality, right? Like yeah. it, that I'm, I'm not biologically male. So of course I'm not, like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to induce psychosis in myself to, to try to, to, try to <laughs> yeah. believe that that's
0: true. Yeah, yeah. To feel like you're always walking on unstable ground, essentially, is, is what that feels like. Okay, yeah.
1: So it feels so much better to just kind of drop that. I mean, Miyoko talked yep. about that a little bit, too, and when we interviewed her, when she talked about discovering and finally accepting the concept of homosexual transsexualism. You know, initially she um, felt kind of offended by that. But once she really understood it and realized that is what I am, something just lifts off of you, right? It, it, right. It's so freeing. It's like, this is what I am. And mm-hmm. my reality is actually okay, that I actually yeah. When I really understand what my reality is, it's not such a bad thing, and so I don't need to carry around this burden of trying to be something else.
0: Yep, 100%. All right. Is my turn? I'm not keeping track of this very well. Okay. Uh, Do you think gender dysphoria is a form of body dysmorphia or something else? Should both be separate diagnoses?
1: Yes, I think they should be separate, Um, I think some gender dysphoria seems to progress into body dysmorphia but not always, so I think that's. I think body dysmorphia in the case of gender dysphoria it is it seems to be a symptom of gender dysphoria for some people, but it doesn't not everyone with gender dysphoria seems to experience the same types of body dysmorphia.
0: Yeah. Speaking of, of definitions of gender dysphoria, to me, I always defined, and I wasn't aware that other people uh, didn't define gender dysphoria this way, it was that that back when I was a believer in trans and that I had a male brain and all that nonsense, um, which actually based on our previous conversation, maybe I do a bit. But no, that's a different, different uh, topic. But um, with... Um, Uh, I always define gender dysphoria as body dysmorphia specific to your sex characteristics. That was always my definition of dysphoria. And my dysphoria was always very body-based. And so, um, so yeah, for me, for me, it's like, I, I don't, I see them as the same thing, but dysphoria is just specific to your sex characteristics that that was my, my understanding. So.
1: Yeah, mine didn't really. I don't remember my gender dysphoria starting out physical. Like if I think about what it was like, for me it was almost pre-verbal. It was just. I think for me it was it was more of a cognitive process of, um, you know. I've talked, I've described it as like an error in co- cognitive categorization. Mm-hmm. I just had so many traits that everyone was saying, this is what boys are, this is what girls are. And they, those, tra- those differences were observable, probably specific to my culture and where I was living too. I mean, there wasn't a lot of diversity. So that was probably a factor. But when all girls are, be, look and behave a certain way, and all boys look and behave a certain way, and you're behaving in so many ways that are similar to the boys, in my naive sort of subconscious process of cognitive categorization i just felt well i just seemed to fit with the boys then and 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 not the girls so my my mind i think categorized me as male and so any opera any situation i was in as a kid where you either had to be divided by male or female and make that choice right like if they were to say okay all the girls go over to that side of the field and all the boys over to that so any of those situations where. boys and girls were separated Mm -hmm. in some way anytime I had to think about myself in terms of am I a boy or am I a girl. Mm -hmm. So shopping shopping for clothes shopping for toys like any of those situations where I in my mind I had to choose okay am I a boy or a girl that's where this it really intense distress boiled up for me because in my my I knew my mind was making a mistake like i felt like mm-hmm. no i'm i was supposed to be a boy and this is this is the category i belong to but i knew that technically wasn't true cuz i did have enough awareness of my body it's like okay like other people are telling me i'm a girl and and i know that you know i knew enough about anatomy and stuff it's like okay so i'm not so that it was just so cognitively confusing for me but as I got older, that became more and more and more about my body. Right. Um, you know, I, it, before I developed any kind of you know, breasts or anything, I would walk around shirtless just like any of the boys. I mean, I just wanted to wear swim <laughs> trunks and, <laughs> and go swimming. I mean, that, for me, that was I just wanted to do everything that the boys were doing. So it, when I develop, entered into puberty and my body started changing, that's when it became more about dysmorphia. It's like, it's like as a kid, my mind had mapped my body to have a boy body to have a flat chest and and <clears throat> and that's how my brain mapped myself and so when i started to develop breasts it for me because my brain hadn't mapped that as part of my body it felt so alien to me. It just felt like something, it felt like there were cancerous tumors stuck to my body. That's really how I experienced it. Mm -hmm. And when some people, when they talk about getting surgery, they have like phantom sensations of, of, you know, their body parts aren't there anymore. And they have, so that's because their body had mapped their anatomy. And now that they've removed that anatomy, now they're experiencing phantom sensations. I never experienced that because my body had mapped a flat chest. So removing my breasts just, create a congruence between mm-hmm. what my brain was, how my brain had mapped my body and what my body actually looks like now. And I could, I could tell like exactly where everything was on, on my body and close my eyes. Like it, I, it just, so it, it solved that problem for me. And so I would say that part is body dysmorphia, that my brain had mapped a body that, that wasn't actually my bodily reality.
0: Yeah, so I, I had, as a, as a young person, I had a very different, not very different experience, but for me, it was all, it was all, what was being told, like, I wasn't making an error in my brain. I wasn't, I don't think I was really thinking about, um, boys and girls, really. I think because I was, I was homeschooled and only around family and close, uh, like church friends and whatnot. So there's less of a a designation between the boys go here and the girls go there, you know, we all kind of played together, but there was a designation on what was, what were like girl typical activities and what were boy typical activities, um, which are kind of like normal. Yeah. But, um, for me, it was that I was constantly behaving in a way that was associated with the boys. And I was always playing with the boys and the boy games and wanting to dress like a boy. And I was constantly being told No, don't do that. Or girls, don't do that. It wasn't that I wasn't wasn't allowed to do those things. I was just constantly reminded that it was inappropriate that I was doing those things. Mm -hmm. So, so it wasn't. So I never had. I always understood that that I was physically a girl. Like I never made that. Like I never had that kind of internal distress. I just had a deep desire to be a boy because then, then I could just be free to be doing what I wanted to be doing. But Mm -hmm. my body was telling me that I should be doing the. And the people around were saying that my body meant I need to be doing, you know, these things that which felt you know, just boring and uncomfortable and not, you know, what I wanted anyway. So I think that, so I didn't have that kind of categorization issue. It was like, I just knew what boys were. and I knew what girls were and I knew I wanted to be with the boys, but I knew it. So, so I had, I definitely, by your definition of like desiring to be, um, the opposite sex. Yes, I had that for my first understanding of what um, what the difference between boys and girls were. But yes, the, the but I entirely with you again. Is I didn't have that kind of body dysmorphia until yes, until breasts started developing and they were not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, and then post surgery, it was yeah, um, uh, just like just the, the the relief. The relief is all. It's like still I I'm just constantly relieved. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, this is what it was always supposed to be. And like, I know that's kind of so weird for people who don't, who don't experience it to, to, to feel like, um, but, um, but yeah, it's like, it's like, this is what my body was supposed to look like. And, um, so yeah, it was, it was, a, so, so, so yeah, I didn't have body dysmorphia as a child, but I think the body dysmorphia was the result of, well, maybe
1: it's hard to say, right? It, it yeah. was the body just yeah. disf- just disf-
0: is, chicken and egg. Yeah,
1: chicken and egg. Like, so, what? The d- d- dysmorphia was that a result of the gender dysphoria, or does it only become gender dysphoria at the point that it becomes body dysmorphia? I don't yeah. really know. I don't know yeah. exactly where to draw that distinction. But, 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 it does seem like a very sizable um, proportion of, of people with gender dysphoria do have a type of body dysmorphia, or at least it. It progresses into that at some point.
0: I, so I am curious, what is gender dysphoria with again? Because my definition has always included that body dysmorphia. So I am one like, like, what does gender dys, in adults? What does gender dysphoria look like if there isn't a component of body dysmorphia? What is that just a just a social? Yeah, thing? that's a good
1: good question. Yeah, I'm not sure. So maybe, yeah, maybe maybe body dysmorphia is is always present with gender dysphoria. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like it's always present with all forms of AGP, especially the non-anatomical non-ana- type of AGP. I wonder, if, I don't know that that would turn into a body dysmorphia.
0: Right. But would we even call that gender dysphoria though, then, you yeah, know, like if it's not. not, if it's not, um, if it's just a, just a, the, the kind of, you know, occasional fantasy kind of deal. Mm. But, um, um, but I, I do know that there there is like an experience of of being uncomfortable, being socially sexed as your sex and wishing that you were regarded as if you were the opposite sex and it not, and maybe not having it reflect, and then you're not being worried about your own physical body, maybe not having this, any dysmorphia, but having just a strictly social dysphoria. I could see that being, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that would be another kind. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I don't think we could ever just call it body dysmorphia though because I don't because I think it has a different root cause and a different pathway than other types of body dysmorphia. Yeah. There may be some similarities yeah, I see. but but I see. you know like yeah. like people compare gender dysphoria to to anorexia for example and there's a certain amount of body dysmorphia in, that could be involved with with anorexia too if they if they see themselves as much larger than they actually are. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah. I think that's why a lot of people make the parallel, but I think th- there's, there's separate conditions though, like anorexia and gender dysphoria, even though they may share some, some symptoms in common, I think, I think that at least in, in the classic gender dysphoria, I don't think the, I think those similarities break down pretty quickly when you really kind of dig into the root cause and pathways. mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm but both are uh appear to be strictly uh western phenomenon
1: yeah i think i think that parallel between anorexia and gender dysphoria is probably more true with the new cohort like the rogd than than the classic because i used to work for the provincial eating disorders program and when i worked for the program a number of years ago and i was there for i think about four years i don't recall ever having a trans patient in that program But I'm still in touch with some of the nurses that I used to work with there, and they said that their program is now full of, of especially mostly trans, like natal females who are trans identified. So that's a huge change. So I think that, I think that relationship between eating disorders and trans is, is a new, a new phenomenon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and like the cutting phenomenon in girls, that was primarily a teenage girl thing. Like, it's I think it's just um, yeah. We're gonna have Lisa Marciano on soon, and we can yeah kind of dig yeah. into the this phenomenon a little bit better.
1: Well, it's like people that say um, you know, comp- trying to compare trans to psychosis, saying, "Well, you, this is a delusion that they are the opposite sex." It's like, well, it it can it can look that way from the outside, mm-hmm. but a delusion has a it's a different um. A delusion is just a different condition. It's hard to explain, but a delusion is a different condition with a different pathway and different causes than than gender dysphoria. So yeah. it, it's it's not really, even though some some of us really do have a conviction as a kid, like I really am a boy, it, it's not the same as a as a psychotic yeah. delusion, and it wouldn't be treated the same. Like I wouldn't respond if I were to take antipsychotics. It's not going to right. resolve my gender dysphoria.
0: Yeah, because it is probably largely hormonally based. I think I'm up.
1: I don't remember. I've lost track now who read.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now,
1: we're, now we're really lost. Did I right, read no. the body dysmorphia question?
0: Yes. Yes, yeah. I think you okay. did. Yeah, because I okay. answered uh, first. Uh, so in the UK, uh, over the past six years, I've heard of many public figures, writers, artists, actors, musicians, comedians, et cetera, who privately oppose gender identity ideology, but won't go public out of fear for their livelihoods. Is there a similar situation in Canada and the USA? Have you had well-known figures privately reaching out to you? And if so, what sort of percentage?
1: I don't think we've had anyone um, that was really high profile reach out to us. Um, but certainly, you know, in terms of like celebrities, but um we definitely do have people reaching out to us um you know journalists and teachers and counselors and uh even other trans people saying i'm concerned but i'm afraid to go public with this right and you know afraid for their careers afraid of losing family afraid of losing community or friends um so that that happens a lot that a lot of people want to help in some way or do something about this but they don't have the They don't, um, they're not at liberty to, to go public with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. I I haven't, I'm not aware of personally, any, any, uh, celebrities, I'm sure there are, you know, countless, uh, numbers of them who, uh, who are skeptical or concerned and remain silent. I think that's going to be, I think that's going to start to crack here very soon. I think, I think a few people are going to find their courage and then it's just going to steamroll from there. But, um, but yeah, I've, I'm just like you. I've I've heard from a lot of people who say, you know, like I'm a school counselor or I'm a journalist. I'm a you know, a, a lot, mostly people who work with teenagers is who I'm hearing from mm-hmm. and saying that you know I'm seeing this in my kid's school or I'm seeing this in the school that I work for. But I can't say anything. Um, like a, fr- a friend who works in healthcare and he's got he's got a lot of colleagues who are basically saying, you, you know. Yes, I'm seeing all this, but I'm not going to say a word about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think there are a lot of health professionals, a lot of education professionals who see what's happening and they say nothing. And I'm getting, I'm getting angry about it. It's yeah. like you know, just I don't know.
1: I understand the fear, but yeah. I think yeah, I think it's I think a lot of people. I would say the majority of people out there, is my read. The ma- I think a lot of people see the problem, are concerned about the problem, um, but are kind of waiting for the critical mass. They don't want to be one of the, one of the leaders you know, out on a limb getting, getting hacked off. So I think they want a certain amount of safety in numbers before they're willing to come forward. But I think what we're going to see is as soon as that critical mass happens, it's all, all of a sudden we're going to be flooded with, with yeah. people speaking out about this. Once, once people know that they're, they're safe to say something, I think all of a sudden things are going to change very rapidly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if only I just, yeah. Happened sooner.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So somebody was watching episode 34 and had some questions um, that came out of that episode specifically. So uh, the first question that he asks is, were either or both of us diagnosed with gender dysphoria and um, who made that diagnosis? Um, so yeah, you're, you're up to give that one a, a go.
0: I I was actually diagnosed with uh, transsexualism by an endocrinologist. Um, yeah, that was my, my diagnosis. I wasn't, I didn't have any, uh, any therapy or any like kind of, uh, counseling session or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I was just my, uh, I told my, uh, my doctor, my regular just general practitioner that I had gender dysphoria. I wanted to tra- transition to be a man. And she said, yeah that sounds like a you know the right thing for you and here like here's an endocrinologist who won't require she's like i don't think he needs therapy and um you know because i don't have any like mental health diagnoses or anything and so she's just i don't think you need therapy here's a, here's an endocrinologist who will um who will give you uh testosterone uh, uh without a letter and then when i want to see to see him he was like i don't know why you were told that i definitely do require a letter but let's have a chat after 15 minutes of just kind of by like my family history and stuff like that he's like yep sounds like you know what you're doing um and yeah i got my first testosterone injection that day i got i got um uh top surgery by a surgeon who didn't require uh, a letter either so my only diagnosis is transsexualism which was given to me by the endocrinologist so that he could prescribe testosterone
1: i still see um a lot of uh physicians using the transsexualism code for billing so it's it's oh, still okay it's still it's still out wow. there wow um but yeah, i was, that was that, in
0: 2011 okay yeah
1: yeah um sometimes the billing codes are different than the diagnostic codes so mm-hmm. maybe that's mm-hmm. so they're not necessarily diagnosed with transsexualism but I'm, I'm still seeing that a lot in or was in patient charts. Yeah. Um, but
0: could be some, some insurers have, have an antiquated. Uh, yeah, could be. coding.
1: Um, so I was diagnosed with, I think I was diagnosed with gender identity disorder. Um, oh yeah. Because it was before gender dysphoria. It was before this current um, DSM. So it was before it changed from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. Uh, Vancouver had um, a specialized gender clinic for a long time. And when I, um transitioned it was just after a major uh overhaul of the system and how trans care was being done in Vancouver so the original gender health program was dismantled mostly due to a lot of activist pressure and then um, one of the clinics in Vancouver was still known as like the specialized gender clinic but it had been very much revamped and the processes were all different so that would have been under um the standards of care six so according to the standards of care six i mean that was back in the time where um they were still recommending you do the real life experience and and then you know psychotherapy and a lot of assessment and a very very slow careful process so when i transitioned it was more of like an intermediate stage it was the early days of the affirmative model of care so i was still assessed over um a period of several months before i started hormones but that was done by a family doctor at the specialized clinic and then before I had any surgeries, um, I had to see a psychologist and did a quite a deep it was just a single visit but it was it was a very detailed psychological assessment. I remember filling out tons of um, of different like screening tools and you know I think she screened me for for things like personality disorders and mood disorders and so it was a very thorough um, eva- evaluation um, before any surgeries but it wasn't for the purpose of diagnosis. Yeah, it wasn't so much for the diagnosing gender identity disorder. It was just assessing all of the other possible mental health problems. Right, ruling that, things out. Yeah. More yeah. kind of a differential okay. diagnosis. I know it, it it's really different from place to place though, because you know, even within Canada, in Alberta, last I heard um it has to be a psychiatrist that does the hormone readiness assessment whereas here in bc any uh, family doctor or nurse practitioner can do it
0: okay okay yeah and i think i wonder if the diagnosis is if it ever was for the purpose of diagnosing gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria but more so basically screening the person for the you know whether or not transition was going to be a benefit or a detriment you know i think that's probably more what it is than the than diagnosis of a condition you
1: know i mean the in the WSPAD standards of care, one of the criteria, when you ha- there's a list of criteria for hormones, one of the criteria is a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, but that's really been minimized in recent years in the informed consent um, model. If,
0: you know, and I just... wonder if the I du- I don't think that W, It's it's written in the standards of care, but like a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, what, you know, like the does anybody know how to diagnose gender dysphoria other than saying, you know, like, the did you play with mostly girl toys or boy toys, you know, like that, that what is it, six or eight, like eight questions that are very, very superficial and very, um, um, yeah, just, uh, that's, like, if, if that's if that's what it takes to get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria and if that's what's required for the, I, I don't know, it's just, it's how, how the standards of care or what or no, it's uh, the DSM, how the DSM Diagnose or says to diagnose gender dysphoria is um, uh, to be honest laughable, I'd say, um, and that's been the guidepost for I don't know how many years now, long time.
1: Yeah, I kind of think maybe there should be like a like a fellowship for physicians if they're interested in doing this kind of care that they receive, like specific training for diagnosing it, because that that would be the case. Like, I mean, all of the the uh, DSM criteria. It, is kind of vague like even if, yeah. even their diagnostic criteria for something like psychosis is, is kind of oh, vague yeah. but okay. but okay. psychiatrists learn to do a more thorough and meaningful. Um, you know evaluation when they're doing their when they're doing their training and their residence and, and they're doing their 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 residency in psychiatry is when they're going to get a lot of the more meaningful. Um, ways of interviewing people and and a more nuanced understanding so yeah I think that for someone to just crack open the DSM and and look at you know the the list of of criteria it is it is very vague and and you can see how so many people could potentially fall into that but Mm -hmm. um, in the descriptive part of that chapter um, they do talk about the three different pathways to gender dysphoria they do talk about um, the early childhood onset gender dysphoria which is most which is highly correlated with homosexuality, they do talk about the AGP pathway and they talk about the DSD pathway, so they talk about three different pathways to gender dysphoria in the DSM. But that's unfortunately that information is really divorced from and missing from the WPATH standards of care.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is the next one, is that a separate question, would you say? It's kind of
1: related. It's the same person asking, so I'll just read this one as Mm -hmm. well. So it's about um, uh, the butch femme subculture that we've talked about in previous episodes. And they said, do you not see this as a time in space um, when lesbians and gay people were more underground or hidden, it was a thing. So meaning like the butch femme subculture Mm -hmm. was a thing. Um, but now with the level of acceptance and no need to be in dark clubs, is there less of a community and more people just living their lives and with time changing, with times changing, so does the look of a group of people?
0: I think you're probably more qualified to answer this question because you, you know, you were in the, in the butch femme scene back in the day. Um, but, but my answer to this is no, I don't think that would be an explanation for the change because again, like we, we were talking about earlier is I think, you know, we, we both agree that there's you know likely more than one pathway to female homosexuality and i think yeah the 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 reason the butch femme, i, I think it's an organic thing i th- i think it's again going back to you know gender does have a use in society and i think that's what we're seeing play out here is like i don't i don't think it's like i guess some critics would say like you know an imita- or like trying to be heteronormative and that's problematic i don't i think it's just you know it's just it's an organic Result mm-hmm. of somebody who's naturally quite masculine, and then somebody who's kind of you know just typically a uh, uh, feminine, but just happens to be same sex attracted. But yeah, I think I think it's an organic uh, uh, whatever. I don't know what word to describe that. But um, um, and so no, I don't think it has to do with acceptance or or lack thereof, or or even why lack thereof would 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 need to create that. Dy- like lack of acceptance, like homophobia, would need to create that. Except in that whole heteronormative mm-hmm. imitation thing. But anyway, I'll stop and let you go now. Well it, it's a
1: I mean it's a it's a point of criticism that I have or, or a point of conflict that I, I've had with corners of radical feminism for years because I think the radical feminist take on the Butch Femme subculture was that it was very performative, that it was um that it was just, you know, shame and our and our drive to be more heteronormative that we kind of kind of mocked heterosexual couples by mm-hmm. one person being the man okay. and one person being the woman and so there was a, that criticism a bit of a charade that, or something yeah that it was just okay. kind of a that it was just superficially a subculture and a choice that we made to perform these gender roles uh to mimic heterosexual couples and i think i think the read of that was wrong um i mean to put it to put it bluntly i, I don't mm-hmm. think it was that superficial i think what they missed In their understanding of it, I think butch lesbians are a type of lesbian, I think that is their authentic. That was our our authentic experience of how we expressed ourselves and our gender nonconformity related to our sexual orientation, I don't think it was just a costume that we were putting on to play. You know, to play the the male role, Um, I think that's too shallow. Uh, and superficial a read to it. I think there are aspects like the cultural, subcultural aspects of the butch femme scene. Some of that is was performative and a cultural thing. So the fact that butch femme culture was kind of modeled after 1950s dating rituals. And I've talked about that in the past before too. And I don't think that has to, that doesn't have to be a part of it. I think that part can evolve. Like there's no reason for why we have to be stuck in the 1950s when every other relationship has moved on. Right. right. I mean, that 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 I think is personal choice, how we want to interact with with our partners and model our relationships. But but the the butch part I think is something that just came naturally to us and and as and we can't control our attractions either. I mean I can't force myself to be attracted to butches or men or anyone that I'm I'm not attracted to. I'm just attracted to who I'm attracted to and I'm attracted to feminine women. So I think you're right that, that there was a butch femme dynamic that I think just came organically. Um, and I think, you know, we've really seen a lot as the narrative has changed and we've shifted more to, to trans, I think a lot of young kids who would probably grow up to butch lesbians are interpreting their experience as I am trans. And that's what our whole yeah. culture and our society is telling them. Yeah,
0: yep. And the boys too, but at a younger age, I think. Yeah. All right, uh, one t- time for one more, then wrap it up. Yep. Uh, so I live in a progressive town. My kids are asked what their pronouns are at school, camp, etc. My eight-year-old is so confused, he recently told someone his pronouns were she, he, they. How do I discuss this with them and not put them in a position to be alienated with peers?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Um... I mean, one thought I have is, uh, you know, if you draw a parallel to other belief systems, you know, like our kids go to public schools. With kids, other kids who have probably their families have a lot of different belief systems right there might be uh, different different faith beliefs, you know so they're they're among their peer group, they may have friends that are Christians or Muslims or a lot of different belief systems, so I mean, could we think of gender ideology as another belief system. That we don't have to believe the same things in order to be friends with somebody or to accept somebody else's beliefs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. But I mean, when this, in this situation too, it's, it's kind of, it's being institutionally imposed. So I, I like your, um, uh, yeah, your belief system. That's exactly what it is. I think we could look at it almost like if a um, like a Muslim kid was, for whatever reason, ha- was going to a Catholic school, right? Or or an atheist kid was going to a, a Catholic school or a Muslim school or whatever the case may be. It's kind of like this is what this is what they believe. This is not what we believe at home or what you necessarily have to believe. But this is, you know. Um, it's, it's hard because it is, you know, we're talking about, you know, public schools, which are, you know, but um, but yeah, I think that's that's the only way to, to, to kind of frame this is, is it's a belief system. And, um, you know, maybe, yeah, you know, for the sake of of of, you know, fitting in and not and not alienating yourself or being disrespectful or whatever, you know, there could be some benefit to going along with the pronoun thing or whatever, um, because because that's the that's the custom, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, you know, I don't think that's going to be the custom much longer, but it's certainly not, it shouldn't be on a, on a child's shoulders to, to buck the system and alienate themselves. Like, let us do that, you know, and like yeah. the kids can 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 go along with the pronoun thing. Um, and a lot uh, of kids,
1: I mean, I've got school-age kids, and a lot of kids are, we sometimes underestimate a kid's ability to think criti- critically. And, and I know... Mm-hmm. I've heard parents, some parents say like, yeah, my kid learned about that stuff in school and they think it's stupid like kids, mm-hmm. kids are starting to push back on this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I know my one of my kids um, came home from school saying that their teacher taught them all about, um, you know, the, the seven, eight genders, I don't remember what the number was, but taught them all of that, some of that gender ideology stuff. Um, and she found some of the, the teaching about intersex interesting, but as, you know, as far as the gender stuff, I mean, with my kids, it kind of went in one ear and out the other, they think it's stupid. So right. they're not, just because it's taught in schools, I do want to kind of reassure parents a little bit. I mean, just yeah. because it's taught in schools doesn't necessarily mean that the kids have to believe it and, and get behind it.
0: Right. Yep. Very good point. Can we do
1: one. There's there was one oh, que- yeah. that that question that came t- uh, to me today. Um, just I oh, thought it was yeah. such a great question about AGP and why it seems to be kind of culture bound to North yes. America and yes. Europe, and why isn't it happening outside uh, in other places? I thought, thought that was a really interesting question.
0: It is. It is a very very good question, and my answer to that is is it is happening. I think I think AGP is is culturally uh, neutral and, and universal, and probably throughout time you know as long as as long as there's been um you know male sexuality and people with you know weird crossed wires in their head not to be again uh, like just put it bl- like you know uh glibly um but i think i think it's just we happen to live in a moment of time where we have uh culturally and ideologically decided that that means that they're women um whereas in other cultures throughout all time and maybe not all. I know obviously there's some a Roman emperor who certainly got away with it. And, you know, I think, uh, as, as, as we've discussed, uh, certainly, uh, some, some musicians who are able to, to get away with it in, in, in certain cultures and, um, but it it all has to be done. It all has to be done within the terms of that culture, within the language and the understanding of that culture. And there, there are, I mean, there are, we, we um, uh, when we had, uh, uh, Rod Fleming on, he was, you know, talking about how there are, there are certainly AGP transsexuals in, in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, they don't have that understanding of it as AGP, but, but mm-hmm. it's clearly that's what it is. And, um, and so if you, if you have a culture where transsexuality is accepted in some regard, you're going to have both motivators for it, you know? And, um, but I think just in most, the vast majority of cultures, nobody's going to give up being a heterosexual man mm-hmm. uh, to, to be, uh, you know, probably publicly reviled and possibly harmed, you know? So I I think it's just, we're seeing so much of it now because our culture is celebrating it. Yeah.
1: You know, in the cultures we've, you know, we've talked a little bit about those, those countries where they have like a third gender, like the Fafafine and that just because gender nonconformity has a place in their society doesn't mean it's a very elevated place in society. It doesn't mean they don't experience any, Homophobia or discrimination, and I mean, what what Rod w- was describing to us is that they're they're kind of segregated to certain occupations and certain yep. stations in life um, when they're assigned as the Fine, Which doesn't mean they can't be happy in the live fulfilling lives, but they. I don't want to paint these cultures as total utopias where life is totally oh, grand no. for them, but yeah. but it would be such a different pathway, you know, because the the fafafine, Fine and, and I want to stress, like outside of the West homosexual gender nonconformity is kind of the the norm more so than in the East, more so than in the West. Um, And that used to be the case even here in the West Mm -hmm. prior to the eighties. I I think things, I have a, I have sort of a hypothesis in my head that, that AIDS did a lot to start cracking down on, on gender nonconformity amongst homosexuals. But so outside of the West, you know, the Fafafine to us kind of sounds, you know, sort of unusual and foreign to us, but because um, they don't necessarily have a third gender category in all of the Eastern countries. But but male, especially male homosexuality, does tend to be a lot more, they do present a lot more feminine outside of the West than, than here. So with the Fafafine or the ladyboys, they would have been identified as Fafafine at an early age because they were obviously gender non-conforming. And, No one was telling them to be it was just organically people were observing that that these boys were behaving in a very effeminate manner, and so they were said they were told well this probably means you're you're one of these Fafafine. That wouldn't be the the pathway for those with AGP like they would have been fairly typical boys up until a certain age. Yeah. and it would be later in life that they maybe would feel motivated to live as as girls. But it it would have it would have been obvious to everyone in those villages, like, well, but you weren't one of these fa-fa-fine up until age nineteen or whatever. It would have been a very awkward transition into being a lady boy, I would think.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't. I wonder would it be culturally allowed, and would there be an internal motivator to do that? I I just don't think there would be. Um, I in, don't in see the, where the, the... In the Samoan country, I don't yeah. in the Samoan culture in like in, in Filipino culture, there is, there is a, like there, you can see why that would be appealing to, to an AGP, but, um, but in, in, in Samoa, especially where they don't have like medical interventions. Right. They um so I don't see it's so, yeah, I think it's also culture bound. I think, you know, in ours um right now, like I think the, one, one of the primary reasons we see so much, uh, so many heterosexual males transitioning, and what is probably most likely, autogynephilia. But I think there are other motivators. Is we, our culture right now, um, vilifies heterosexual males, right? Especially, um, uh, yeah. I just, I think there's just so many, so many push and pull factors to, uh, uh, to, to, to the AGP or just heterosexual male uh, transition. Uh, here in the West right now, but I think I think a lot of it is probably culturally created I mean there's there's certainly merit to the to the porn uh, hypothesis that mm-hmm. that does play a play a big role um, but but yeah I just I think yeah, I don't I, what would AGP look like well, I mean we yeah kind of know what it would look like in like and like Thailand and these these kind of more um uh, more industrial um uh, southeast i don't know what it looks like in in like china or japan um but um Mm -hmm. rod
1: Rod was describing a a real kind of class division too that that the lady boys tend to be of the lower classes because right as you as you climb the um the social ladder gender nonconformity is less and less accepted so you know you can't be a and i made a tweet kind of to this to this effect um it's hard to kind of it's hard to wrap nuance into a tweet, but that was, this is what I was getting at, was that um, gender nonconformity, I mean, you couldn't be a doctor or, or a lawyer as a, as a ladyboy, is what he was describing, that it tend to be the lower classes that were allowed this this flexibility to be a third gender, but not so much in the upper classes. So I would think that if, um, if an adult male with AGP wanted to transition, it would probably be depending on what social class he was in too, it wouldn't just be a change from male to, to lady boy. It, it could potentially be a, a fall from their social class as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah, And it's going to be... And it's also, I don't think even so much of that much of a calculated decision, you know, it's like, it it also has to do with like, their their, their upbringing, their parenting, you know, it's like, so like, again, Rod Fleming was saying that when it's a when it's an upper class family, any gender nonconformity, you know, in a young age is kind of like, you know, beaten out, you know, it's like, it's just not tolerated. And so you're going to repress and internalize and and, repress, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's going to be the case of whatever your reason to, to, uh, you know, whatever your desire to wish desire to live as a woman wherever that desire is coming from it's gonna have so much negative external consequences most of which you probably already internalized mm-hmm. that it's not even a question of what occupation is available for me after this it's uh probably just a lot of um yeah yeah it's already been yeah. you know, kind of beaten no, out of your consciousness or, yeah. Or,
1: yeah which which is what happens more here in the west yeah that that was just mm-hmm. you know that, that we're not a culture that um that tolerates gender nonconformity very well. We think of ourselves as, we think of all these other, yeah, we think of ourselves as so progressive and all these other countries as so archaic and homophobic, but Mm -hmm. we're the culture that created trans.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: I think of of queer theory, because in the early desistance literature, they said that um, low social status was one of the reasons, one of the reasons for why gender dysphoria doesn't resolve. adolescence that was sort of one of the observations but was that it tends to persist more in lower social classes but I kind of think some of that class dynamics might have been happening it might uh, it's potentially a wrong read of why that's the case it might be similar to what was happening in Samoa that we see that there's more Perhaps more acceptance of gender nonconformity in the lower classes, where it's getting beaten out of out of people more in the upper classes, and so maybe there's just more people wanting to, to transition in in the lower classes. Like I know for for me, growing up in a farming family, it wasn't uncommon for farming women to look like butch lesbians,
0: right? Right. Even though yeah, they you're were still, be farming in the high heels. You no. Know,
1: so there is there. I definitely saw some gender nonconformity. I think of of queer theory as being the middle class solution to yeah gender non-conformity in higher classes
0: yeah 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 the higher classes won't tolerate it the lower classes can't afford to tolerate it so yeah
1: yeah Yeah.
0: well good stuff there's a couple of questions
1: we didn't get to apologize if those were um, any of your questions but uh, just for for time we we should probably wrap up
0: yep and thanks for sending them in they were they were excellent
1: Excellent questions. Gets, gets me thinking about things, too. Yeah. I, I enjoyed I had a lot of original
0: these. thoughts along the way. I did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much. See you next time. See yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.